Welcome to the Startup Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Joyce Franklin. If you work at a startup or a company with a startup attitude, this podcast is for you. Each week, we talk to an expert guest about financial success and lessons learned on the journey to long-term security. In 2014, Steve Datnow founded OrgChart5, Inc. to create a SaaS product to help human resources professionals automate the creation of organizational charts and then use those charts to facilitate workforce planning exercises. The number five in the company stands for HTML5, which was the hot new tech back when the startup was founded. The company grew subscriptions from zero to over 1,500 in just six years, with customers ranging in size from the world's largest corporations and governmental institutions down to businesses with less than 100 employees. In 2021, OrgChart5 merged with OfficeWork Software. In the same year, the new company was acquired by the private equity firm Lock8 Partners. Steve was attracted to the acquirer because it specializes in helping SaaS companies accelerate growth by providing an infusion of both capital and experienced resources. Steve is currently the CTO at OfficeWork Software. Welcome, Steve Datnow. Tell me about your current company and your role in it. All right, Uh, so in 2014, I founded a you know small software company to address uh, sort of a niche need in the human resources industry with respect to automating organizational chart production and streamlining the workforce planning process. And essentially, what happened was I posted a one-page website to uh, um, see if anyone was interested. Now, I, I had prior experience knowing that there was some business out there. However, I just, you know, wasn't sure anyone would be able to find me or would even engage with sort of a, a, an unheard of entity. And uh, lo and behold, two weeks later, I got a call from DirecTV and um, convinced them, you know, to spend some money producing a product because at the time I had nothing. It was not even a prototype. You know, they paid, uh, I don't know, something like $20,000 to just get something. And then there was the foundation for the company taking off. I mean, you know, there was somebody interested in eating what I was cooking, right? And the $20,000 that they paid, what problem did you solve? So what was happening for them at the time, and this is before DirecTV was acquired by um, AT&T, was that it was a department, the IT department within DirecTV, and one of the vice presidents was asking for a, a monthly organizational charts that had a very specific format to them that they could then use for planning and you know discussion purposes, right? And the gentleman that I was speaking with was doing it by hand, and it was taking him probably a day, you know, to produce and. He was very interested in something that could do it automatically, right? So he and I worked back and forth and, um, you know, came up with sort of a, a sort of minimum viable product. And it was never meant to be much of a public facing company. It was really meant 
to be a company that produced products that was distributed and sold by other companies. Um, this prototype that we were talking about was really my attempt to sort of bootstrap a company without any funding, you know, because once you have venture capital funding, that creates all kinds of challenges downstream with respect to governance and, and then, you know, exiting to, you know, to some financial event. And do you know that from experience? Yes, I do. When you hear that sound, it means I'm jumping in to provide additional context that did not come up in the original interview with Steve. Recent guests on this podcast have talked about venture capital. For those a bit hazy on the difference between venture capital and private equity, venture capital invests in the startup phase, while private equity prefers more stable companies with existing sales and customers. For the uninitiated, a venture capitalist is an investor. In return for cash, VCs take a piece of your company and their ownership percentage determines their amount of power. VCs generally invest in multiple companies at a time. Each VC fund contains a pool of money from multiple investors called a portfolio. Many entrepreneurs take money from VC investors so they can hire talent and quickly grow their company, while others believe VC funding is a necessary evil. And some, like Steve, prefer to bootstrap the company, retain control, and avoid answering to a board of directors picked by an outsider. People that are especially getting into startups don't realize that if you get $50 million from a venture capital firm, that venture capital firm is usually going to put a contract in place with you that says, no matter what the exit is, we're going to recover our money plus some additional money. So if you sell that company later for $52 million, they're going to get all of it and you are going to get none. So I was trying to create something where I had a lot of flexibility on the outcome, which in this case was reasonably positive, as opposed to sort of being tied down to having to create. A, if you take 50 million, you've got to sell that thing for at least 100 million for it to be worthwhile when all is said and done. Entrepreneurs generally share a universal business experience, which I call the entrepreneur's wheel of life. Based on interviews I did with over 65 founders and advisors for my book, Startup Wealth, you can find a graphic of this at www.jlfwealth.com. Phase one is laying the foundation. You've got an idea that can change the world. During this time, you get your team together and test the viability of your product or service. You're also raising capital and taking in little or no income. This phase can also be very lonely and filled with doubt. Phase two is ramping up. For the lucky entrepreneurs who close in on a liquidity event, you'll help negotiate the terms of the deal. You're still responsible for increasing the enterprise's value while you address the legal and financial implications of your deal. The liquidity event is the payoff for you and your team to receive tangible financial proof that your company is valuable. Phase three is realizing the dream. The two years following your company's liquidity event can bring on many changes. If you stay, you'll probably be subject to more oversight and accountability. The day-to-day -day routine may stay the same, but that startup we're all in this together feeling usually fades. You'll have many opportunities to spend your wealth, 
including angel investing, expensive personal purchases, and your next startup. The true entrepreneur always returns to phase one to go around the wheel again. Steve, please walk us through your experience in each of the phases, starting with phase one at org chart five. Sure. The idea was, can I create a company with no funding? And can I bootstrap that up to, you know, a place where somebody's going to be willing to pay, you know, five million plus for that entity? And, you know, I sort of slept on it, thought about it, slept on it, thought about it. And, and I just couldn't come up with a reason that I couldn't do it. Maybe for the first eight months, it's just heads down coding, trying to actually learn some of the more modern technologies because I had been a, a CTO at a prior company and I hadn't coded in, you know, years. So I was a little bit out of date. And, um, you know, I'd say to anybody, you don't have to be a great coder because truly I wasn't. Right. I look back at some of the stuff I was doing and people like would laugh at it. Now they're like, you didn't know how to, you know, create an encrypted uh, connection with the client. I mean, that's like any programmer worth their salt should know how to do that. And I knew obviously that that was a problem, but I told those initial customers, you okay with it? And they're like, fine. It's not really sensitive data. Just like in the movies, it shows some guy hacking away for two hours and they have product. No, this was just day in, day out, just grinding towards some sort of minimum viable product. At about eight or nine months in, I actually started thinking about, well, how am I going to actually get some marketing going here? So I, I did find a local company through a friend and I went and had breakfast with those guys. And, you know, we sat down. This was the Officebook software. Um, they're about, you know, 10 minutes north of where I live. And the great news about it is they were willing to sell a product that wasn't really market ready. And they were willing to do a very sort of informal 50-50 split on, you know, anything that we could bring home. And, you know, we got out there and the next thing you know, you know, we're bringing in a handful of customers every month and real brand name customers. Like we brought on board Roku within a week or two of our partnership. And then also during that, that time, I reached out to my network and found a partner in South Africa that had sold similar types of products, a guy I'd worked with in prior companies, and he was super excited about it. And again, he was also willing to go to market with something that was a prototype, and uh, he brought in some sales. So, you know, I would firmly state to anybody in that laying the foundation phase, find something that somebody that, that's a pain point that somebody really wants, and then start building that, right? So solve a problem. And the second point is creating a market versus tapping into an existing market is very, very different. Okay, so tapping into an existing market means that there are other players there and you're able to sort of leverage their marketing, their advertising, their efforts to create awareness about the space and or you're trying to create a new market, sure, you can do it, but that's very capital intensive and takes a lot, a lot of time because you're basically trying to get people to consume something that they didn't even know that they, they wanted prior to um, going to market. During phase one, what are the financial challenges? You know, it's that whole, you know, measure twice, cut once problem, which is you really don't be naive about, you know, 
what are the costs? You can sit down with the spreadsheet and start adding up, you know, what you need. And so when I sat down and I started adding that up, I was able to basically come out with numbers that were low enough that it wasn't overwhelming. And of course, I wasn't paying myself, which is always a, a win there. Um, you know, it always takes longer and it's harder than you think it's going to be. And yes, it was. Um, so, it, you know, a bit of uh, intestinal fortitude is required to get through the early um, stages. But I still recommend that people try to go to market uh, early, you know, with the, some MVP, a minimal viable product, just so they can start getting feedback and test price points and, and see what's working and what's not. But it's a rough road because you're not making any money and, and time is just sort of slipping away on you. Can you share any funny stories about your new customers at that time? Sure. So uh, a community college. So I, you know, early on, I do a demo for this community college. And a few weeks later, uh, a check shows up in my home mailbox, which was my business address, of course, for like three years paid up front for the product. And I look at the check, I deposit the check, I call up the company uh, or the community college, and I talk to the guy, Zoe, I'm super excited about uh, working with the product and let's get started. You know, there was no communication of like, oh, we're gonna buy it, it was just done, right? And then of course, a week later, he sends me another email saying, oh, I've got another job and I'm leaving. And I said, well, who should I work with? And the guy sends me an email like, don't worry about it. So there was like just a, a, a funding event <laughs> that occurred without any, you know, effort on my part. And how much was the check for? Yeah, let's see. Probably that, that was probably like $9,000 for, for the community college. So your tax dollars at work. Exactly. Yeah. Government is great. But it, if you are going to do government business, be prepared for a long process. So let's move on to phase two, which is a pre-transition phase. It usually lasts for zero to 24 months before the liquidity event. Tell me what that was like with Org Chart 5. By 2017, um, I've got two distributors. They're both producing a reasonable amount of revenue. I'm, I'm hiring people because it, it's no longer feasible for it to be sort of a one-man band or a two-man band. So... Basically, the consensus was, let's sell a majority share to somebody that wants to grow, you know, uh, the business to the sort of the next chapter, next level. And, and um, so basically found an investment banking firm that this is what they do. They, you know, find sort of smaller SaaS companies and, and sort of are a matchmaker to, they probably have a catalog of maybe 400 different organizations that are out there that that acquire these type of companies and they we put together a uh, you know a management deck which is essentially a 30 40 slide powerpoint that talks to the value proposition and then you do a lot of work on the financials so you have you know the story to tell and then you go to market and um about you know six months in uh you know we got an offer and found a partner that we felt was the, the right fit for us. Uh, um, one funny story is one of the founders of um, Uber, which I won't name names, but he's a billionaire, right? Actually expressed interest, right? And made it like an offer. And uh, I got on the, you know, the Zoom with him and was trying to negotiate. And what I found is you don't negotiate with a billionaire. A billionaire 
just gives you a price and that is the price. And I was like, at the very end of the call, you know, the number was a little bit low. It wasn't awful. It was just a little lower than I would have liked. And I, you know, I said, what's a few million between friends, right? And he was like, well, we'll talk. And there was no negotiating. So it was an interesting experience to, to say the, the least. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, it, it really isn't any different than like negotiating for a house or any bigger purchase, right? You're, you've got a price, they have a price, and there's some back and forth on, um, uh, on what, you know, the end product will be. Do you have any tips for negotiating? Selling is something that you really have to get outside of your comfort zone if you're not naturally a salesperson, because you need to sell your product, whether you're selling the vision of the product, the product itself, um, you're trying to convince investors to invest, whatever you're, you're selling. And, you know, early on, I was very much in, you know, sort of an engineering mindset. I, I was so almost afraid to tell people the price or get a quote out. It was all very like, are you interested? And, and if you're interested, let's talk more. And how much is your budget? And later you're just, you come up with a number and you say, well, that's going to be $5,000. And if the person's interested, they'll negotiate. And if it's too much, for them, then they'll let you know and you get to the answer no quickly. Steve told me he has learned to be more confident in this area. He knows his price, is willing to state it, and he can support it with facts to justify the price. You can't just go out there. I mean, we've all watched Shark Tank and somebody comes in there and puts some monster valuation on a company and, and they just get eaten alive because they're like, well, how do you value a company at $5 million when you've sold, you know, uh, $189 worth of product to date, right? Steve, for the deal you just negotiated, coming to it after a few decades of asset accumulation, you probably were not desperate to complete the deal. What would you say to a founder in their 30s who might be more eager to consummate a deal? Your acquirer or whoever's investing you will read you like a book, right? So it's a game of poker. My suggestion to anybody is get your game face on, go into the negotiation knowing what you are and aren't willing to do, and don't show that person that you really, really need to make this deal because you're you know, running out of runway. And I know that's hard, but, you know, I always use the analogy in my mind of like a professional tennis player, a professional golfer, no matter what's going on in their lives, they need to get out there and focus and win. So that's my advice to anybody that's going through this is nobody cares exactly what your backstory is. They're looking at the value of what you bring. And uh, they will take advantage of you if, if they feel like you uh, are in a weak position. That's great. You certainly have a lot of confidence about your position at this point. I don't know what you were like at 20. Well, uh, you know, I think that's, uh, I, you know, I let my, you know, emotion sort of come through a little bit. You know, it's like I would, my advice is go watch the poker channel and just watch some of those guys play, you know, and sometimes they don't have a hand. And they still win, you know, the pot, right? So that's great advice. So let's move on to the liquidity event. In your case, it was an acquisition and a merger. Could you explain that? 
it, it's not terribly complex. Basically, what we did is we went to market with the position that as part of the um, event, we would merge the two companies together into a single entity. You, you'd be prepared to spend a few hundred thousand dollars on lawyers, just part of the deal, right? They're going to take it out of the end product. The acquirers was interested in keeping me around. So we negotiated that they would become the majority owners and I would become my sort of the second largest shareholder in the business. And, you know, it gave them confidence that I was willing to stick around and, and put in a certain number of additional years to get what we refer to in the industry as a second bite of the apple. Liquidity events typically come in three flavors, merger, acquisition, or IPO. Steve's event was first a merger and then an acquisition, so that's where this episode is focused. We'll talk about IPOs in a later episode. In a merger or acquisition, your company is combined with another. It may retain its name or not. Most likely, certain functions like HR, marketing, and legal will be merged into one operation, meaning there will be layoffs. In an acquisition, your company stock will likely be converted to shares of the acquiring company, unless the deal is for 100% cash. In phase three, immediately after the event, the founders and executives often go to work for the new or acquiring company for a certain length of time, as required by the terms of the deal. There are three possible ways to financially exit a company. One, take an all-cash deal. This is a safe and conservative choice. Two, take a stake in the acquiring company for the potential of a future payoff. This is the riskiest option. Three, a combination of one and two, some cash and some stock. The second bite of the apple is the ability to participate in the future growth of the company after you increase the enterprise's value and the stock price rises. For Steve, he likes the idea of a balanced approach, taking some money off the table and taking on some risk for the expectation of a second event in the future. Often, founders are contractually obligated to stay for the transition, although this can be a frustrating time for an independent entrepreneur. No longer in control, they are taking orders from people who had no part creating their company. If you were the boss in phase two, it's entirely likely you won't be once you enter phase three. Vesting in peace is when you stick around for a few years post-liquidity event to receive the full payout from your deal in cash, stock, or both. How did you know when it was time to be acquired? So going into this, we knew the words the bankers used was the market is a bit frothy, which is that it was a good positive market. Other companies were getting pretty solid valuations. Um, so that drove the decision. I think we would have gone into turtle mode, you know, like kind of retracted into our shell if the market had been weak, right? So if it's 2008, don't do this because there's not a lot of people that are, are buying companies. So but do you do your homework um, so that you can take that factor out of it. Now, just to finish the thought here, luckily, you know, nothing happened that sunk the deal, right? Like for anybody that was around like in 2001, when 9-11 went down, you know, deals were on the table, negotiated, and then they were done. It was the, everybody just pulled back and said, 
you know, we're just going to wait and see. So the luck would be that nothing occurred. I mean, funnily enough, I mean, we did it all during COVID, which was a big deal. What's your advice to a startup employee or founder who does a deal and realizes they've made a mistake? Uh, You just need to be prepared to walk if you feel like the new uh, situation is not uh, in your benefit, right? And there are plenty of acquiring companies that just don't take care of the staff. And then there's kind of an exodus that happens. And my advice to anybody is be the first one out the door, not the last. You are currently in phase three, realizing the dream. Tell me about the challenges you're facing now. One challenge is, you know, you go from not having a boss to having a boss. So there is a sort of a transition, at least you have to make in your mind that you can't just say, well, you know, here's a a system or some software I want to buy for the team and it's $10,000 and I slept on it. I think it's a win. Let's just do it. Now you have to run it up the flagpole and make your make your case. Um, and that's a big, big point is don't sell your soul. If you are going to do something where you retain an equity stake in your company, and, and, and let's just say it's, it could be a majority or a minority stake, it doesn't really matter, realize who you're getting in bed with. And, and you know going in, tr- really trust your instincts. If you think that these people are going to be, you know, basically just trying to flip the company and reduce costs, they are. And, you know, you will have some level of pain or your vision might maybe thrown out the window. So go in eyes open. Um, so as far as that sort of being on the challenge side of it, the, on the positive side of it is as a, you know, uh, sort of an entrepreneur running your own company, you might be very reticent to make certain investments in the company. Right. You know, you're like, you really struggle over, should we do this marketing campaign or do this product direction? Well, when you're doing it, you really want to try to understand how much cash your partner or acquirer is willing to put back on the balance sheet. So what you don't want to have happen is they acquire it, you know, and then they just try to run the business over on the existing cash flow because that's not going to result in rapid growth, that's going to result in more of the same. So one of the questions that I had was, how much are you guys willing to recapitalize business or put capital into the business as part of this next phase so that we can actually realize the dream of, you know, getting that next chapter going? And, you know, I liked the answers that I was hearing. And, you know, you want it in writing. You don't want it just a verbal. You want something that says, we're going to put two, three, five million on the, on the, you know, a line of credit or just straight capital on the books to hire or grow or, you know, acquire an affinity company or whatever it is that was discussed. Many of the people who I talked to who experienced a liquidity event would do something special for themselves. They would buy something special or take a trip. Did you do anything for yourself after this success? Anyone that knows me knows I'm not that kind of person. Um, so the, the short answer is not really. The long answer is four kids, boom, funded all their colleges, right? So that, you know, it was just nice taking that off the table, you know, that kind of stuff. So, you know, it, it definitely, it, it requires sort of a little bit of a change of mindset, which is if you're, 
you know, wife says, hey, let's put a new couch in the family room or something. You're just like, fine. And you don't ask, well, how much does it cost? What are you going to pick? You just say, go do it. So look at it as a way to look for ways that it can actually make your life easier. Right. And, uh, and you stop, you know, you're not worried about whether the car payment is 400 bucks a month or 600 bucks a month. You just, it's a, it becomes sort of a non, a non thing. So that, that to me is the real positive of it. You know, maybe when I was a little younger, maybe I would have gone out and bought a fancy car, but, you know, done that. And my advice to anybody is for the first two weeks, it's really cool. And then it's just a car and you move on with your life. Phase three lasts one to 24 months and you're there now, committed to stay for two years. What do you hope to accomplish in this time? I always tell people like the best thing that you can think about in your head is to make yourself irrelevant. Because if you're able to build a business where you're taking all the things that you did and you're delegating them to other people that are potentially more capable than you at whatever it is doing the books or selling or marketing or writing the code, then you've won. It's giving you headroom to explore, uh, either grow the business by finding new opportunities and new partnerships or whatnot, or allowing you to step away and not having that second bite of the apple jeopardized because you're so pivotal to, uh, uh, you know, the enterprise. In phase three, it's not about your own personal heroics. You know, the stories of coding in the hotel room, you know, before the big presentation or going and scoring the big deal by flying out on the, the red eye to whatever the East Coast and taking advantage of an opportunity. That's great and it really helps you bootstrap. But once you're at a certain level, you can still do that stuff, but it's, it's still going to be, you know, a minor impact on the revenue for that quarter, right? You, you know, you bring in that hundred thousand dollar deal, but if your revenue for the quarter is five million dollars, that's not a huge percent swing of the overall pie. So you're, you're now moving toward the team as opposed to the individual. And what's next for you? Well, you know, as I said, my goal here over the next two years is to take the company to the next level with this team to come up with a position, uh, a situation where I'm not pivotal to the success of the company anymore. Because, you know, if you create something that can stand on its own, you know, it's like when your kids leave to college, they should be self-sufficient, right? As we wrap up, I'd like to hear what you've learned in your decades working in startups, starting when you were an employee. What financial lessons have you learned? People that go in and advocate for themselves and try to determine, you know, exactly what they should be getting often can get an order of magnitude more interest in that company than uh, they would have. And in my first exit, I was like clearly the number two guy running the flagship product and I was getting stock options grants pretty frequently from the founders. But what I didn't understand was they were small grants. So the fact that I was getting lots, the cumulative value of them wasn't, you know, didn't end up being monstrous, right? I mean, it was okay, but it wasn't, you know, what it could have been had I gone and pushed, you know, for a little bit uh, a better equity stake. In the first go, I don't think I asked enough questions, right? I didn't really understand exactly how much debt they had taken on, who who were the the stockholders in the company and you know what percentage of the the overall company i was actually getting 
For founders who are considering doing a deal with an established company, what signs should they look for to make sure this new company will continue as a going concern? I think what one should do is just really ask, sit down and ask the hard questions to the acquirer about, you know, their strategy with respect to the product line and what they're planning to do and your position within that company and get really good, crisp answers and use that to inform your decision, as opposed to going in there and sort of hoping that you'll find a nice slot in that company and that they'll prioritize your product, you know, in the in the bigger scheme of, of things. And, and, you know, you can interview other people that are in that company that were potentially part of prior acquisitions and, and hear what they have to say. What advice do you have for creating and preserving wealth? Well, you know, I, I think one of the things that I personally have found is I'm better at making money than I am at investing money. So anybody that, you know, if you do make some money, one, find somebody that is, you know, maybe you're a good coder, find somebody that's good at, you know, wealth management, and you can work with them to figure out what to do. And also try to set aside enough money that to give you some runway, right? So if you make a check, don't take it all and put it into like one stock that you think is hot, because you may find yourself in a little bit of a liquidity crunch there. Um, also, last thing is just consider your stage of life. Right. If you got small kids and they're going off to college, it will come and you will have to pay for it and it will be expensive. So again, it goes back to my whole thing. There's no magic, right? You really can predict what's going to happen in the future. It's some of the big sort of the macro level. So it's a plan for. Thank you, Steve, for joining me on Startup Wealth. You can find Steve on LinkedIn. And Datnow is spelled D-A-T-N-O-W. He welcomes messages about bootstrapping a SaaS business and seed investments in early stage SaaS companies. Thanks for listening to Startup Wealth. Today's show was produced by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Original theme music by Philip Reynolds Price. To learn more about J.L. Franklin Wealth Planning and how we can help you protect your wealth, mitigate taxes, care for your family, and pursue your dreams, visit jlfwealth.com. We are a growing firm. If you are an experienced advisor who subscribes to our approach and wants to grow with us, please get in touch. If you like the show and want more, please rate and review Startup Wealth in your favorite podcast app. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be construed as specific investment, legal, tax, or financial planning advice. Please consult with your professional advisor before taking any action based on the content discussed.